David, hello, come in. Yeah, well, I'm I'm kind of browsing through the list, and it's like, well, uh, you know, I really don't give. I, I, I'm not really interested in the on Delta buying a refinery. Not, <laughs> no, I get I'm, that. Yeah, and I'm not really interested in the. Uh, in the Discovery Channel crash, except maybe as to, hey, if you want to see something that's been done before, uh, yes, all exciting new data gathering tech, uh, except there's still video of the old one floating around. Yeah, the, the one they f***ed up. Yeah, the, well, the one that went, they, they executed it perfectly. It just huh? didn't produce the result they really thought well, they were going to Well, it was, if, if it's the same one I'm thinking about, it was a remotely piloted airplane. A wing touched before the rest of the a wing tip touched before the rest of the airplane. It basically went in not wings level. And um, is that where they it, flew it into the can openers? They right. flew, flew it into the can openers. This is the test of the uh, anti-explosive. Uh, that's that's uh, the anti-misting jet fuel. Right. Okay. And which the thing failed? Went, which failed miserably, spectacularly. Right. Um, uh, ex- enthusiastically fails. <laughs> yeah, you're right <laughs> okay. about it not being as controlled as they wanted. And when my they, when yeah, my boss yeah, brought this out. up and say, well, you know, they should do it again. The fuel didn't really get a chance. And I went, yeah, yes. You know, most of those other crashes have always been so much more under control. Right. That, you know, that's like the, I think we quoted this guy recently, uh, the fireman who was quoted in the local news is saying it's it's lucky there was no fuel on board <laughs> yeah, the airplane right. on fire. Right? Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I thought that, thought was interesting about this new uh, new uh, intentional airliner crash was that there was a human pilot on board until towards the end, and the story I saw described it as him ejecting. Yeah, he did a GTFO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. I guess. We're good. Yeah. I guess. Okay. But but uh, my, but did he actually? Did they install an injection seat, or did he just like put it on automatic pilot and go back and open the door and do a little? I, I uh, think it's the latter. I, I think. Who was that hijacker guy who went out the um, tail end? Suffering there? a little bit. Yeah, I think it's suffering a little bit from uh, translation uh, uh, difficulties. You're thinking about DB Cooper. DB Cooper. That's the one. Yeah. So. And which, if I remember right, what did DB Cooper go out of the back of? Was it a seven twenty seven? I don't know. It was a seven two? Yeah, it was not a DC nine. It was a seven two. Yeah, because the seven twenty sevens for a while had a, a, a stair. Well, they all had a stair. It, yeah, but, but I mean, the, after the one this, on the DC nine, you had to eject the tail cone to get out. Right. 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 So and you didn't have to do that with the seven twenty seven. They actually used that to service the aft labs. Right. Yeah, and and, and, and to, to help board. them with the evacuation requirement. Yeah. Jeb, go. Oh, and, and I've I've boarded uh, on those stairs before. Yeah, uh, me too. Not just you know, not just deplaning. And, and, and it's kind of sad though that that, and I have very very fond memories of seven twenty seven, and it's kind of sad that they're now crashing them deliberately. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, it, someone it's like how yeah, long are know, we going to have to wait a, for a seven thirty seven to be put on as a rare object in a museum? Mm-hmm. I mean, how many of them has Boeing built? A lot, a lot. Isn't seven twenty seven or seven thirty seven the most uh, common aircraft in the world now? Oh yeah, it has been for years. Yeah, not the most common aircraft, but 
Oh, I think Skyhawks still have that B. Well, that was my question. It was either that or yeah, or the one seventy two. As far as commercial airliners are concerned, yes. All right, oh, I'm uh, sorry. I, I was thinking strictly in terms of airliners. Oh yeah. yeah okay. Well, hang on here. Let's see now. Uh, and it passed the seven twenty seven, which at one time was. Yeah. Exactly. It, and it and it passed the seven two a long time ago. And trivia quiz: How can you instantly tell a seven twenty seven one hundred from all of its successors? Uh, I give up. How? Number two engine inlet is oval shaped. Ah, really? Yeah. Because they had a little problem with airflow over the top of the fuselage. That's the center engine with the inlet over the fuselage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, fl- it's a little flattened oval. I'm yeah. sorry? It's flattened yeah. a little bit. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a vertical, kind of a vertical oval. And uh, that helps solve the airflow problem uh, because. Man, it's really weird to have a, a, a compressor stall happen, and then it relight. Bang! Off she goes to the races. Yeah, it sucks to be there for that. That's a good, Sorry, good way to lose a jet Sorry, doing a little plane. research here. Stand by one moment here. Let's see. Uh, I don't know so, about you guys, but I opened my beverage. Yeah, I, my beverage is open as well. Um, what is your beverage? Uh, it's another uh, another uh, 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 Kugel, uh Okay, okay. Wheat. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, according to Wikipedia, there have been uh, 737s. Wait a minute, I had this just a second ago, and now I've lost it. Um, since 1967, 7,010 aircraft delivered with 2,400 orders yet to be fulfilled Seven, as of... 737. 737s. So, it's 7,000 delivered, 2,400 on order as of December 2011. Oh, yeah, they're going to so, break 10 grand... Yeah. Uh, in deliveries and move through 15 before but oh they're my. working on okay. a new version now. That's right. According to also according to Wikipedia though the Cessna 172 has 43,000 total built. So it's not even close. It's now, like how four many times. 737s would it at uh, how many 7 well, 172s could you build out of the metal in a 737? That's that's <laughs> a good question. Uh it's kind of like, you know, if you need a baby in one month, you get nine women pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Welcome, folks, to episode 285 of Uncontrolled Airspace. I don't even know if I can leave that in. <laughs> um, <laughs> uncontrolled ex- Airspace. Exercise your judgment as best yeah, as you can. Yeah, this is a general aviation podcast. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise That's yeah right. this That's is right. this is the best seat in the house we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got now. Sky riders they, they, now does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> <laughs> and you're in sight clear around turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and alpha we're recording this episode on uh, Thursday, May third, twenty twelve, and uh, and uh, it's the Mythical Man Month. Uh, see, the, the geeks out there will know what I'm talking about. There's a legendary computer programming book called the Mythical Man Month. And it was based on the idea that if you if if you had a project that had ten programmers on it, could you get the job done twice as fast if you had twenty programmers on it? And and the oh no, it's going to take twice as long. That's exactly what they not exactly, but that's that's the concept. Yes, is that the more people you add to the project, the slower it goes. Um, and uh, I don't know if that applies to birthing babies as well, but you never know. You, you never, never heard that expression. 
I, you know, I think I probably have, but I blocked it out. <laughs> I'm sitting here in the virtual hangar with two of my very best friends. Uh, let's see, Jeb Burnside's out there talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, I'm enjoying the, uh, the weather here and uh, getting some stuff done and uh, kicking very butt cool. and taking Very cool. You've been flying? Uh, not for a week or so. I've got a trip I need to make between now and the and this time next week uh, up to Georgia. Um, hopefully, hopefully just yeah. a day trip. Yeah. So. And also here is uh, Dave Higdon uh, joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hey, David, how are you doing? You know, it's just been a lovely week. I wish I could remember what the world's happened during it, but it's been a lovely week. You guys are all real busy right now. Huh? I mean, that's good. Work is good. But, oh, yeah. uh, uh, well, I keep following this little arrow on the treadmill that says this way forward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that's all good. I know you, and I know you're actually starting to prepare for Oshkosh. That's very exciting. We're, uh, uh, it's what it's like eleven weeks out now, and uh, it's it, it, eighty Jack, days. To be honest, it kind of contributed to the sense of velocity that's accompanied this week. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Because I haven't really. It's not like my output for the week has been that outrageously high or especially above average. It's all the Oshkosh and two or three other longer term things that have fallen on to the, the desk this week. And it's like you're talking to somebody earlier in the week. I said, so, uh, so dude, when's the next time you could, you know, have a little opening to take on a project? And I go, what month? Yeah. I mean, nar- narrow it down by one-twelfth for me. Because, well, what, how far ahead are you working right now? I said, September. Oh. Oh. Oh, I don't even want to think about that, man. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So you know, it just made everything feel like all of a sudden it's it's all going way faster. The cruise control is set thirty five above the limit, and if I get pulled over, I'm going to get a killer ticket. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, so uh, not, not only you are you planning uh, getting ready for you know being you know starting to resize the managing editor's hat. How's that for a metaphor, huh? Um, getting ready to put out air venture today this summer um a lot of people are getting ready for oshkosh and you guys wanted to make sure that we remind people that uh, the uh, the is the notum available now or is this just orderable now it's orderable now okay it's orderable I, can't, now. can't you go ahead and download it online now not yet not quite not yet, yet? okay not quite yet yeah well, put, were there put my link, order in it, last week yeah i signed up i always and this is a hard copy that gets mailed to you free oh yeah 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 gotta so have the, the hard copy Got to have the hard copy in the airplane, and um, uh, in in the discussion actually. Um, but it's you go to an EAA website, uh, AirVenture website. You f- put in your name and address, and they send you an item. What could be better? Yeah, and and I so um, EAA has been doing a lot of these webinars, uh, web seminars recently, and uh, uh, they're going to do one on the uh, Oshkosh arrival. Um, who was it? Was one of you told told me about this? So was it? I think, I think I saw a link to it. Yeah, I've seen a link to it. I don't know much more about it than that. That there is one. There's an, a webinar called, you know, the the Oshkosh arrival. I, I, I wonder, you know, I bet it's pretty interesting. Even if you're not going to fly the uh, the arrival, um, you know, I've I've flown the arrival once, and uh, and I've heard many. Uh, I've heard people tell of flying it many many times. And uh, it you know. is 
absolutely one of the singular pieces of flying you can ever do in your life. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's I've, simul- only, I've only done it once. Of all the times I've been to, to Oshkosh, right. I've only flown in during the show once. Yeah, well, we, we tend to arrive. Oh, I remember earlier, that yeah. year you came up with Lee and Jerry. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm doing, I'm doing a buck 70 up the tracks. Um, <laughs> controller at, at, uh, at Fisk said, you know, they're closing the airport in, in 10 minutes. You guys need to get on the ground. It was me and a Centurion. And uh, I beat the Centurion to the field, literally about 1,500 feet, doing about a buck 70 up the track till we got, you know, almost on top of the numbers, pulled everything off, dropped the gear and flaps, and rolled out to the other end. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, if there's was, other airplanes the, around, you don't get to do it that way. Yeah, the, other, the, the Centurion landed behind me, and that was the last one to land before the air show. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, David, this most singular experience. What did you mean by that? Well, there's this, there's, there, I, I don't know of anything comparable to landing as part of a mass arrival. That is, because every day for the first four days, starting a couple of days before the show, it's, it's like one long stop, long nonstop parade of, of, of little airplanes, mostly, coming into uh, three different runways, actually. Yeah. What do you mean, little? Little, relatively speaking. Not as big as that heavy iron we were just talking about. Although one of them may show up in a pattern once in a while. So stuff, stuff that you could drive home to so, show your mother. And so you, there's, there's this whole little parade going on here, and you're part of the parade. When you hit Rippin' and start the arrival, and regardless of which way they send you at Fisk for 927-1836, left or right, you become part of this parade. And when you get down to short final and see all these airplanes stretched out along the grass and all these eyeballs on you, and it is a singular moment that Mm -hmm. really really challenges you to keep your focus where it belongs, and that's flying the airplane until it stops moving. Then you can get out and look at all those people and go, woo I've just done something, only a percentage point of a percentage point of a percentage point of the humanity in all history is done. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Exactly. It, yeah, it, it, it is, a, it, it is a, a, a thing with all those people watching and, and all the, you know, it's kind of a different environment. It's not an impossible environment to fly in, but it's different oh, no. conditions. It's, it's, it's challenging <clears throat> from a, a variety of standpoints. It, it's not so much technically challenging is, as it is um, the first time you do it, if, you're, if you studied the NOTAM and, and, and maybe even talked to some people, maybe you know, listen to some people on a podcast, not perhaps us, but uh, somebody who knows what they're talking about. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, it's not that complicated. It's more complicated than arriving at an uh, a non-towered airport, it's slightly more complicated than arriving at a towered airport. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's pretty much on par with going into a Bravo airport or something like that. I would yeah. Say. When I, the, 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 so the time that I flew in, um, I was uh, in an arrow with a buddy of mine um, who uh, is a, uh, a high-time CFI. And uh, and this is his arrow, so he knew this airplane intimately. You know, not unlike the way Jeb flies the Debbie. Um, you know, Jeff knew this airplane just inside and out. 
Um, but he was letting me fly the airplane. So I'm flying the airplane along the, uh, along the arrival. And we're downwind for uh, runway, what is it, 9, all right? Uh, correction, 2-7, um, because we're going downwind over the, over the terminal, and then we're going to turn right and right and land. So, you know, we're, we're in, in the parade to do what you normally do, which is go almost all the way to the shoreline and take a right and then make another right onto final and come in and, and touch down. We're over the terminal building, which is sort of roughly midfield or actually near the numbers, but we're, we're you know, midfield-ish downwind. And the controller says, you know, you know, red and white arrow, can you turn final now and land, you know, beyond the VOR, you know. And, uh, and, I, and I'm thinking for a second – Okay, this might be a little bit more than, you know, me not being real familiar with this airplane. My buddy Jeff, I looked over him just kind of like, what do we what should we do? And he gave his eyes kind of, you know, went wide in 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 uh, thrill, all right? And he said <laughs> he says, "My airplane." Right? I, said, <laughs> I said I said, "Your airplane," all right? And he took the yoke. He immediately just grabbed in all of the flaps. He just put in all the flaps and he just just, you know, banked this thing over in to a right turn and just dropped it right down at the runway. Uh, turn final, probably you know thirty feet above the runway, um, and and you know even though he had developed all this speed, you know coming down fast like that, you know he managed to just dump out all the speed and just touched you know just kiss the ground with his airplane and just roll out right exactly where they asked him to. It was it was quite a moment. It just goes to show you when you you know you guys who know your airplanes can do this. Um, I would have been a little bit out of my depth trying to do that maneuver. Go ahead, I had, Jeff. I had a moment two or three years ago. Uh, it was the uh, year I flew up with Dave Allen. And we were arriving right before dusk, right before sunset, I guess. And um, air was smooth. It was clear. Came in. This is well before the show started, like um, Wednesday or Thursday or, or show something before the show started. So, you know, momentum was building. There were people there. Everyone there was there early and, and was dedicated enough, anytime you heard an airplane fly over, they would stop and look and see what it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, it was that kind of evening. Okay. Yep. And came in, uh, vectored straight in on the downwind um, in, to make right traffic from the south for uh, runway nine and rolled into a bank, pulled power off, rolled into a bank and held the same bank attitude all the way to short final until when I rolled out right on the center line. Nice. And, and there was video of this going on at the time. Can't really tell that it's a constant, constant um, bank angle, the whole, all the way down. Boom, you know, landed, rolled out, taxied in. Um, nice. That was just smooth as silk. It was just yeah. really cool. Yeah. But uh, most of the arrivals to, uh, to Oshkosh uh, involve a little bit more traditional following of the, uh, of the NOTAM, which spells out all these different uh, procedures and routes and techniques. And, uh, you know, we've said this before. We're going to say it again. It's important to, if you're planning to fly into Oshkosh, to check this NOTAM, read this NOTAM, have this NOTAM with you in the airplane. You know, um, get a hard copy also get a soft copy and put it on your iPad or your Kindle or whatever. All right, and uh, um, you know, be be familiar. It's not an impossible uh, procedure to follow if you familiarize yourself with it and you pay attention. Well, and Jeb Jeb said something a few minutes ago that I think is really key here. Is that it doesn't really demand more of your flying skills than what you you know what you needed yeah. to get your license, except from one area, and it demands that you be paying attention paying attention to your surroundings because 
it, the one thing that separates Oshkosh hands down from anything else you've done is the volume of traffic, the intensity, the numbers that might be there when you arrive. You might arrive there in wide open airspace and them say, oh, you know, you got a falcon coming in behind you and uh, can you turn short final and get it on the ground, get it in the grass and there not be anybody ahead or behind you and you got to, you know, you can do that. It's, you know, several thousand feet of, gra- of, of pavement out there. But it's the paying attention part. And I started recently studying to take a, 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 a state-required exam. And it, it, in looking at it, it reminded me of reading the NOTAM in that it was a very specific set of training for a very specific purpose. And that's the way to kind of a, look at the NOTAM. That's a little extra rating cap on your head. You get to know that puppy and have it there on the side with you because it's an open book test. But then you have it there to help you successfully, safely, and sanely arrive at Osh. Bring it around. Jack will sign it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah we Bring it around. Did. We'll all sign it. Yeah, we signed a bunch of notams last year. I, I, I'm not sure why anybody thinks that's cool, but apparently a few people did, and we're glad to, to, uh, I've been, to do that. I've been adding notams, Oshkosh notams, to, to my library for years. Mm-hmm. In part to look from one year to the next to see how much, if anything, has changed, and to look back several years sometimes and see just how much has changed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, anyways, it's a, it's a final exam of the nth degree, yep. and you can do it. So you can get in line now. You can uh, go to the uh, EAA website and sign up, reserve your copy. Is it EAA website or the FAA website? Yes. Okay. Probably. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, do it now. You want to get your hard copy. What's next? Um, David, you put this on the list. You, um, so I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but we talked about this uh, Cessna that went into the Gulf, um, and uh, the one where the uh, pilot became incapacitated for some unknown reason and uh, circled for a long time and then eventually crashed and sank. Um, David, you've pointed us to a story by uh, Bruce Landsberg of AOPA, uh, and what, what's notable about, uh, notable about this story? Actually, hold that thought for one second, David. I almost forgot. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and, <laughs> and I'm coming to you once again from high atop Lookout Point in Nottingham, New Hampshire. Anyways, uh, Bruce Landsberg, David, well, what's the point here? What's, uh, what's notable about this story? Well, we were, we were discussing the many options that might have underlain how the airplane behaved. Uh, circling left, sometimes circling right, sometimes altitude excursion, sometimes... Uh, and the fact that it apparently just kept doing that until fuel exhaustion set in, and and with nobody to change tanks, that's that's it's going to happen to you. Well, even if there's, even if it doesn't need to change tanks, if there's nobody there to get it on the ground, you're going to run dry at some point. Fortunately, those crashes are always without major fire. But Bruce and some of his staff at the uh, Air Safety Institute of the AOPA Foundation. Uh, it, Actually, we're theorizing on some of the same stuff that Jeb and I were talking about, uh, except they have benefited a little more research and a little more time. And one of them was that the, the bloody thing was looking for a VOR to pick up on after having gone outbound on a radial and lost the signal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of started to drift around. 
It, it, that that's what makes that that reversal of circling is what makes me think that it was just hunting for something. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes some sense. What what really doesn't make any sense to me at all is the initial right turn. Um, I don't. Yeah, know. yeah, that really doesn't. Well, one thing, and I know very little about about how uh, autopilots work and and this complex an aircraft. But I, I got to wondering what would happen if, when this guy became incapacitated, and again we're all speculating here, but if if he slumped across the controls, would the if, for example, hypothetically he had caused the yoke to turn all the way over to one direction and possibly even you know pushed against the panel, would the autopilot have been able to overcome that input and try to keep going straight and level, and 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 as a result end up circling? It would have tried, uh, and if he'd have slipped off of that at some point, it may have, you know, leveled itself out. Uh, it, unless he broke the, you know, unless he broke the clutch hold on it, at which point I'm not sure exactly what it would do. It would depend on how that autopilot set up. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know. Having only stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, I, I I still like your theory about it searching for some sort of, you know, nav aid. And uh, that makes some sense. It's maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense that one would start off across the Gulf of Mexico, in a piston twin using VOR only as your navigation. However, um, but well, in by this time, if he had a GPS on board, or at least had had a certified GPS up and operational on the thing. He'd have been navigating by GPS. Um, I don't know. It kind of, it, it's a mystery. It's yeah. A, well, and that's one of those things when I, that I've met guys over the years. You talk to them and say, well, they're flying with two really excellent portable GPS navigators in their panel. But their George is still talking to old technology navigation gear. Right. Yeah. Which means if, there, if it's a Loran, it's not talking yeah. to anything. Uh, but see, if he was doing an operation like that, if, if he was doing something like that, he'd have the autopilot in heading mode, and it would just would have kept right on booking to Florida. If it if it had been in heading mode, I agree with you. It would have done what we saw happen to the uh, the the doctor in the four hundred Comanche. Uh-huh. Uh, it would have just motored on until it ran out of gas, uh-huh. and the automatic trim system would have held it level as it was coming down. Uh, that's why I don't think it was on heading mode. Uh, but it could yeah, have been, so. and if there was a failure there of a of a, uh, of if a you were, suction system, that, yeah. that, but then there's if, another problem. If you were navigating via portable GPS, you'd be navigating with the heading bug, is not not uh, the number one VOR. Yeah, um, you're right. That, that's what you'd couple to the to the autopilot. But, uh, what I've always been intrigued by is these guys who are navigating by they're they're navigating by GPS. They're spending part of their time on airways, spending part of their time off airways. Uh, they set the autopilot up, like you say, on heading mode. Uh, well, if, if they don't put in the heading change, nothing happens when they get to the turn point. And I've watched a, uh, a, a, I watched a guy once. We were flying across country to Florida together, and that's basically what he was doing. We were close to an airway. He had the VOR turned in, but he had his GPS programmed for the destination. And as we motored along, uh, I made a turn 
at a VOR that was going to keep me from going over water. Uh, he was to my left about two miles uh, where I could see him and on an airway. And when it came time for him to turn, he didn't. He, he was engaged in conversation. He wasn't paying any attention to the GPS, and the bloody thing was still tracking that outbound VOR or maybe an inbound VOR over by Jacksonville. But it just motored along for about two miles, and I finally called him on the common that we'd agreed to and said, did, were you changing your mind about how you were going to Lakeland? And it did a real quick 30-degree bank to the right. Yeah. How about that, huh? And leveled hey. out and then went, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> One last question about this 421 that went into the Gulf of Mexico. Have you heard anything about whether they've decided whether they're going to try and recover it or not? The only I've thing heard. I heard was they probably weren't. I, yeah. Sure. I, I doubt it. The only insurance company might want it, but... No. See, here's what here's my total speculation, I, and I have no information. This is not based on uh, – only one fact here is from a news story, and that is that apparently the pilot was a very successful doctor, um, like, I don't know, a, 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 a plastic surgeon or some sort of big-time doctor. And, and so based yeah, on that – he was. Yeah. Well, I also heard or read in another story that the doctor – uh, the, the nominal owner and nominal pilot of this airplanes um, had just the, the uh, licensing board, the, the state medical licensing board or something, had just three days earlier determined that they were going to revoke his medical license. Oh, really? He, yeah, I hadn't heard that one. He was a plastic surgeon. Um, oh, we'll yeah. see. Yeah, he was a yep. plastic surgeon and gynecologist. Yeah, okay. So see, as one local Boston sports guy, sports radio guy likes to say, you're making my point, right. um, which is that this guy almost certainly had a big life insurance policy on him. And and it well, would seem it, it, to me that the insurance company would be motivated to want to autopsy this guy. First off, you may be right. Uh, he may have been, uh, you know, this may have been more uh, calculated than we uh Considered. Uh, as for what the insurance company is apt to do, uh, there's going to be somebody in accounting able to run a quick cost-benefit analysis on the difference between doing a search and recovery in 1,500 feet of water and just paying the policy. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. E even I know how to run Excel to come up with that. Yeah. So, so, anyways. Hey, so you were talking about uh, uh, using GPS in these kind of navigation situations. Here's a story that's we've kind of all suspected we'd hear someday but hoped we never would, and that is that uh, uh, there are reports that North Korea – managed to jam the GPS signals that were being used in parts of South Korea. So, there you go, right? Yeah, you know, those those two countries are technically still at war. Yeah, well, there's that. My my point being, you know, we've said for some time now, you know, do we really want to want uh, next gen to be so dependent on GPS and GPS only when this this technology is so so, you know, jammable, interferable. Um, vulnerable would be the way. I'd put good, it. thank you. Better word. Yes. Uh, you ought to be a writer, and uh, I don't have the discipline. So, I don't know what to, what there is to talk about this other than to you know. There well, we go. Here it is, a proof of concept. And, here uh, we go again. Yeah, you know, I, 
about the same time that, that this here yeah, this was posted yesterday, but I'd, I'd heard about it somewhere else earlier. Um, we had talked about, or maybe I just written about all of the G, uh, GPS uh, testing and outages that were noted <laughs> had been noted for some time, various locations around the country. It's like. Guys, if we haven't figured this stuff out by now, and you still have to do all this testing and and note them thousands of square miles of airspace of, as being you know uh, not really covered by GPS during such and such a time, maybe we need to be thinking about something else, or you know, son of GPS or, or something like that too. But the flip side, of it, this is nothing different than what the the military is doing, you know, in certain areas of the country at a certain time. So okay, fine, yeah. Okay. Well, the, uh, the 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 one thing that kind of pops into my consciousness about this ongoing testing is the uh, is the the thought that there 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 are permutations of signals, signal strength, and directional antenna effectiveness that they're checking out. Uh, so they give it a wide swath. They put a jammer on a beam antenna and put it on a pivot that does a 360-degree turn once every six, minute, six minutes and see how that plays out in the overall. Uh, can you target GPS jamming? Uh, some theorists say no. Others say, we don't know. We've never really tried it on a targeted basis. Didn't uh, isn't the story that Iran managed to spoof the GPS signals to get that drone to fly to them? Uh, that's the story. Yeah, that's one of the stories. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. so you never rule out just a, a fortuitous malfunction. Either. Yeah, right. I know. Anyways, yeah. So that's be a that'd be a great name for a rock band. What's that? Fortuitous malfunction. Okay, or or or, or an episode title, right? You know, fortuitous malfunction. Okay, what's next here, Jeb? You called our attention to this story about uh, that pilots are saying that the that drones pose a major safety threat in the civilian airspace. Yeah, this, this is, is this is the result of the rule, the, right. the opinion this, gathering. We, the, we talked uh, about this last week. Yeah. Um, uh, this is an article in a. Um, Government managers' publications, commercial publication, they're written for government managers, talking about um, the um, uh, snowstorm, shall we say? Yeah, um, that has been ginned up uh, in, as a result of um, their rulemaking authority that Congress gave them in the uh, in the uh, recently passed aviation bill, and people are starting to come unglued. Well, I won't say people are starting to come unglued. That's that's obviously not the case. There, there are a lot of comments in the docket, in the public docket. This is a federal rulemaking. Anybody can, can go to the, the website, it's uh, regulations.gov, uh, and uh, find this, uh, this rulemaking and, and put comments uh, into it, oppose it, uh, support it, undecided, whatever. Um, but it's, it's yeah, it, just the article talked about how uh, uh, many comments there were, none of them were favoriting favoring it and this kind of thing. It's going to be interesting to watch. Eventually this will go through, but we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. So, we talked about this a little bit last week, too. Right, you know. So pilots overwhelmingly said they think this is dangerous. Go figure, right? Yeah, well, that was the headline. It was, it was military and civilian pilots think this is a really bad idea. Yeah. 
Okay. It, it, and you know what? Nobody is, nobody's going to give this an ounce of credence until it bloody well happens. Yeah, unfortunately, that's probably true. Yeah, it's going to take somebody getting scotched by a machine with no life, no soul, and no one in control. And then someone will pay attention for 15 minutes. Yeah. So what's the deal here? Some of these uh, studly uh, Air Force fighter pilots don't want to fly the F-22? Hey, uh, that's what this article says. Well, they'd be glad to fly the F-22. The problem is that nobody's letting them fly the I don't know. Is it still grounded? I haven't really followed this story. No, no, no. They're, they're, they're back up. Yeah. It's not grounded anymore. Uh, this article, uh, this is by CBS News. But you still might suffocate spontaneously while flying. Right. There's, there's, they, they grounded them for four, five, four months last year, according to this article, um, which we talked about, for yep. oxygen system malfunctions. And they're apparently still going on a year later now still having problems with the oxygen system on, on these airplanes um, it's it's injuring or, or uh, impairing pilots and uh, they can't still cannot figure out what the problem is I don't yeah. get it I just don't get it I, uh, but the, the, the headline is some of these F-22 pilots are saying you know until you fix this thing uh, I think I'm going to go back to my old F-15 Eagle. Thanks. I appreciate it. Well, there, there, there's, a, there's a story coming out it, it, not too long that, that, that includes a little information on an Air Force pilot whose oxygen system tripped off when he was on a night flight at yep. Mach Plus. Yep. And in trying to work himself around to where he could pull the activation ring on the backup system. Now, this is suited up for night flight, survival gear, water splash gear, and a very tight cockpit. And he wound up so distracted from trying to restore his oxygen system that he hit the ground at over Mach 1. Really? What publication is that going to be in? I think that's probably going to be in Aviation Safety. I uh, think so. And who would the author of that be? Or we don't I, know. I forget. Yeah, okay. Don't worry. Uh, Tom Cruise is going to appear on the scene anytime now and fix this F twenty two problem. And uh, you know that's that's what the story's going to be about. It's going to be him and his know, boyfriend. Yeah, him and well, his boyfriend. Did you say him and his boyfriend? La 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 la. Yeah, right. Too much information. <laughs> I can't hear you. Too much information. Did they find Amelia Earhart's airplane? Oh, I don't know what is up with this story. I, oh. You know. You know, I guess they're eventually going to find it because clearly they're not going to give up until they find it. Oh, no, man. It's the holy grail of aviation. I guess. So I didn't read the whole story, but there was some story about how they found uh, the the remnants of an airplane sticking out of the sand, you know, just offshore at some island. And I don't know. I suppose I could read the story. Huh? There's, a, there's a photograph dated October 1937. Um, I don't know if it's taken from the island or from offshore. Um showing the shoreline of this specific island. I've never heard of it. I've heard of, you know, all the islands that she supposedly would have crashed onto or near, but I've never heard of this particular island. But, quote, analysis of this photograph shows what government experts, I'd like to... Well, there you go. That's... There you go. Okay. <laughs> believe, believe may be a strut in wheels of a Lockheed Electra landing gear yeah, protruding okay. from the water. It could be 
who knows? But well, what's this? What's what's the holdup here? Somebody go there and dig this thing out and decide. Well, apparently, what they're doing. They, they, well, that's what they're they're going down there in July. Yeah, going down there in July. But apparently, the U.S. government is now involved in this in some fashion because it's an election year. Secretary of State Clinton had a little press availability thing with some of the people um, behind this. Bob Ballard, the guy who found the Titanic, is one of the people behind this. Yeah, okay. Or at least he was in the crowd for this. Yeah. So it's it's the whole thing's rather interesting. It's rather curious that all of a sudden um, um, there's this big splash with you know kind of U.S. government stamp of approval going on here. I, I, I would dispute the all of a sudden part, it, just to the extent that uh, with uh, with with Rick uh, Gillespie, this is a never-ending quest. I've been writing about Gillespie. I've written about Gillespie and his expeditions to the South Pacific, looking for Earhart, going back to the eighties. Uh, and the, the Earhart's not the only thing that he's headed expeditions to find. Uh, but this is the, you know, this is this this is Moby Dick, man. I mean, seriously. Yeah. This is the white whale. If you can find this puppy, uh, and Jeff's <laughs> right, man. They, they this is this has risen to a new level of visibility and respectability with the addition of Clinton and Ballard. Right. So. Uh, so I wish either, it would happen. Somebody's real, I think somebody's really found something all of a sudden, and and now they're they're going to you know mount a real effort to go after it. I'm I'm not suggesting that uh, uh, this photograph with this landing gear supposedly sticking up out of it is the only thing they found. Yeah. B-52. One thing we're certain of. What's that? She went down somewhere in the Pacific. Well, no, you know, see, that's that's where you get yourself in trouble when you jump to those conclusions. For all oh, you no, know, no, no, she, she's she's on the board of directors of the Trilateral Commission. Uh, that's what I'm oh, saying. Oh, I forgot about that. Isn't she one of the underlying forces behind Skynet? That's right. She took off from Oakland. She flew out beyond the Golden Gate. Then she dropped down underneath the radar. I know that doesn't make any sense, but you know. And then she returned to shore where she lived out the rest of her life, be, you know, you know, being one of the leaders of the Trilateral Commission. Um, I hear she's got a rubber band ranch in Simi Valley. There you go. Or as we say here in New England, an elastics ranch. Somebody was giving me a hard time about this the other day. Never mind. Um, (laughs) So uh, it turns out that this year, this summer, is the 60th anniversary, the 60th birthday of the B-52 bomber. And uh, and that's very cool. Um, It means that all the guys flying at this now are flying an airplane that their grandpas were flying. Yeah. Well, and there's just a couple of different stories that have spun out of this. Um, One, I read a story someplace that suggested that the uh, Air Force, or whoever it is who flies the Air Force, I guess, um, is is preparing to recertify this thing. They expect the B-52s to be flying on active duty for another 40 years. They'll be 100 years old if they they follow through on this. That's just like... 
It's just nuts. Yeah, I know, huh? But you know, uh, it, it, it's all it's 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 already got it's A A R P. They're worded in this card. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's a it's a hotel uh, 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 Sierra airplane. So you know, we were we got to get you know. All right, it's the buff, baby. It's the buff. The buff. The buff. Um, we should get that listener whose name escapes me at this moment. Uh, 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 Chris, um, the B fifty two pilot instructor guy who filled us in on the uh, on that uh, scramble uh, exercise that we saw the video of a while back, and get him to to talk to us a little bit about some of his experiences that would be way cool actually um 60th anniversary of the b-52 though led me to immediately think well then we need a b-52 at oshkosh this summer and then i got to thinking well i wonder if you can actually land and as you know <laughs> jeb will then say well once and, and take off a b-52 from uh, from oshkosh the big runway is 8,000. well it's a little over 8,000 feet long which strictly speaking is not long enough for a b-52 um but you guys did a little research on this after I brought it up. Did you get any real information about this? Well, uh, that's the, that's all in email. Let's see what I sent you guys. Yeah. Um, Jack, Jack, you were what? expecting real information? Yeah, well, I don't know. No, I, yeah, okay, yeah, I was, I guess. I'm sorry. That, that was I, my I, mistake. I didn't realize that. That was I my mistake. I didn't know there'd be a quiz. All right, here's a little bit of trivia that's totally unsubstantiated, but I'm buying it, okay? I've often wondered... Why the runway at Oshkosh, that uh, that one eight three six runway, is eight thousand and two feet long? Okay, why and two? Okay, and and I always speculated that it had something to do with some Air Force regulation or military regulation that said you know these machines can only land on runways you know longer than eight thousand feet or something like that, and so they made it eight thousand and two feet in order to meet the criteria. So I was doing this research on the B-52's landing distance or takeoff distance, and I came across an interesting discussion. And they were wondering the exact same thing. Why were so many runways 8,002 feet long? And somebody speculated that it started out this way. Runways in the U.S., once upon a time, you know, in this kind of category of runway, were 8,000 feet long. And then Europe decided to mimic runways of that length, but when you converted... 8,000 feet to meters, it came out to something like 2,439, 2,439 meters, all right? And then later on, when they were doing, I don't know what, some sort of IKO, you know, can making everything consistent, all right? They translated 2,439 back to feet, and the round-off error moved it back up so that suddenly 8,000 became 8,002 because it was a double round-off error. I don't know if that's true or not. But you well, know, I just, just came out with eight hundred eight thousand forty eight point seven feet. So. Yeah, see, so it's, but that's that's just nutty enough an answer, all right? That it was round off error, you know, complicated twice, and that's that, why that makes 8, as much sense as anything. Yeah, else. I know. Anyways, Jeb, you well, did a little. One, did you find your emails about the uh, land uh, takeoff distance? Talking about B fifty two runway requirements. Yes. Okay. Uh, a Google, a little bit of googling reveals in two thousand eight, a uh, B fifty two crew declared an emergency because of weather and an equipment issue, it landed at the Minot, I don't know if I'm pr- pronouncing that correctly, Minot, Minot South Dakota Airport, uh, then later flew out from that same airport. The longest runway at that, this is a civilian airport, uh, it's 15 miles from the aircraft's base, um, but the, lo- the longest runway at that civilian airport is 7,700 7, feet. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. They got that, B-52 <clears throat> into on that runway. 
I'm sure it came. It, it it was lightened up significantly to go out, and then I had only minimum fuel on it. But they got it out of there too. Yeah, the, uh, I'd want them <coughs> to take off on one eight because yeah, there's too much there's too much stuff parked north of three six. Yeah, for the climb gradient on that puppy. Of course, it's going to be light, like Jeb said. Uh, but here's the thing I worry about: the, the runway one eight three six. Uh, it's uh, 150 feet wide. Yeah, the width. That's what I was wondering about that's too. The big deal. That's the big problem as I see it. And the outriggers on a B52 are somewhere out around uh, 170 feet. And the way the ground—trust me—I've spent a lot of time next to that runway. The way the ground drops off on both sides of that runway, uh, I'm not sure the outriggers would ever touch. And they're kind of important. Uh, if there's much fuel on board uh, or if you're doing much tight maneuvering. And remember, this is a, a, an airplane that has nothing but centerline landing gear. It actually pivots so that they can turn. And if you've ever watched one take off on video or in person in a crosswind, the trucks actually turn sideways as it's going down the runway. It's really odd looking. Well, the other trick here is we, we, we were talking about runway width. And the runway width of 1836 at Oshkosh is 150 feet. The runway width at this airport in Minot, South Dakota, that, on which this B-52 landed, is 150 feet. Wow. And they got it in, they got it out. Yep, that solves that issue. Okay. Now, um, whether or not the outriggers would, would touch the ground, who knows? I wonder about the weight-bearing capacity, though, also of the pavement at, uh, at Oshkosh. Um, I don't know what it, what it, I mean, yeah, C5s, um, A380s, um, 747s come and go for the show, during the show regularly. Always uh, late. I yeah, I don't know what those aircraft weigh. I don't know what kind of demand they're placing on the pavement. I just don't know. Well, that's an interesting thing, and you mentioned that, because we know, for example, that the, uh, the A380, empty, is somewhere pushing uh, 400-plus thousand pounds. Uh-huh. Uh, by the time you fuel it up and load it up, it's a million one right. uh, at gross weight. Uh, and the 747s at gross weight, they get up not quite to a million pounds, but operating would, light, they're 300-some-odd thousand. Yeah, going on 20 years ago, I was on a four that weighed like 925, 950 on takeoff. And it was down to 400, 500 um, at the end of this flight. So it makes me question information I'm looking at from a runway, uh, uh, an airport information source that puts the weight-bearing capacity at Oshkosh 1836 at 65,000 pounds for single wheel, 85,000 for double wheel, 130,000 pounds for double tandem. Hmm. 135,000, you said, for double tandem? 130,000. 130, that's per, per uh, uh, wheel assembly. Oh, that's right. That's per truck, isn't it? Yeah, it's per truck, or and you've got a nose wheel in there, too. So That answers my that, question. That sounds pretty do- doable, actually. And if we're mainly talking, you know, the, the uh, runways themselves, uh, the... Uh, well, a 747-400's got four double tandems. Right. 
Yeah. So, well, we'll see if we can find an expert who can fill us in on whether or not it would be possible for we, a B-50. Cl- yeah, we clearly are not. Yeah, I know. But that's never stopped us before. So, uh, let's see now. We're starting to reach... buffs do low passes and, and, and pyrotechnics at Osh. Yeah, and I would imagine we'll get, a, we'll get a pass. But I would love to see one on the ground so I could wander love, around it. I'd love to see one on the ground, too. That would be uh, very, very cool. Pass would be good. Pass yeah. would be good. So, uh, uh-huh. Hey, look who wandered into the hangar. Um, it's a sort of uh, a distant friend of ours, a listener, someone who's been very active in the forums. Uh, it's uh, Chris. Is it okay if I use your last name, Chris? Or are you... uh, let's, let's just keep it at Chris for now. Okay, Chris. Uh, uh, and now, Chris, you, um, we, I first heard of you. Actually, you're a pal of, of, of Tupper's as well, all right? Which, yes. uh, you know, so, but I'm sure you're a good guy anyways. But uh, we heard of you here on the on UCAP. We got one of Tuffer's people on here. Man. Yeah, we do. We do actually. Um, we first heard of you in the UCAP world when you filled us in on a lot of really fascinating background information um, about that uh, Minot uh, uh, B fifty two scramble. I forget what it's called here. Minimum. What's it called again? Mito, minimum interval takeoff. Yeah, and you provided us with a lot of fascinating information. And and we've talked about having you come on the podcast and just kind of tell us more about your flying adventures. But just this evening, we were talking on the podcast about the fact that this is apparently the 60th anniversary, the 60th birthday of the B-52. And that got us to wondering whether or not it would be possible for a B-52 to visit Oshkosh for, the, for Air Venture this summer. And that got us to wondering what are the runway limitations for a B-52. Can you shed any light on that for us? Would it be possible for a, a B-52 to safely operate in and out of an 8,000-foot runway that's 150 a, a, feet wide? A, a normal B-52 runway requirement is 8,000 feet by uh, 200 feet. Ah. The, uh, the tip gear or the outrigger wheels on the, uh, the drooping wingtips are about 150 feet apart. So you need a little bit wider runway than 150 feet. Um, it can be done on the runway you're describing, but uh, you'd need to uh, go through the appropriate channels to get a waiver, and you'd have to probably get creative with getting the fuel out of the wings so that the wings stay up yeah. uh, when you land. It, that was a mark of a good co-pilot was having the wings balanced and taxiing in with both wingtips off the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. Is, is, are there any other operational constraints on the, on the aircraft, on, the, on that type, uh, Chris? I'm thinking about taxiways or, or uh, weight limitations, anything like that. Well, the, uh, again, the, the outrigger wheels being that far apart, uh, the taxiways become problematic. I, I haven't flown a B-52 in a while. So I don't remember exactly what the limitations are or what the current uh, leadership would uh, accept for taxiway restrictions. I'm, I'm currently working here at Whiteman Air Force Base, and B-52s cannot come here except on special occasions because our taxiways are not necessarily wide enough for a B-52 with a with, uh, full, full, full load of fuel and having the wings drooping with the bow riggers on the ground. How would they handle something like this at a show like Oshkosh? Would it would it land uh, and just taxi to the end of the runway, shut down, and then be towed? Uh, remembering back to, to some of the ways I've done it, um, I don't know if you have a uke big enough to, 
to pull a buck. Yeah, that's, well, uh, empty empty gross weight is about two hundred and seventy thousand pounds. They uh, they they move around AC eighties without problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In in some of the air shows I went to back in my youth, I guess it was. Um, we would land and put the gas in one wing, move move the fuel out of the uh, the tip tank and and out of the uh, the tanks that are out on the the end of the wing, and try and bring one wing up, put the gas in the other wing, so you could you could taxi in about half the the space that you would if you were fully fueled, and then uh, they would find like the widest place for us to go and park. Um, Sometimes they would leave us on a runway. Uh, I did a show in uh, the old Cecil Field near Jacksonville. Oh, sure, they yeah. Just tax- they just taxied us to the end of one of the runways they weren't using for the air show and parked us there. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. A, a B-52 is kind of difficult to get moved moving around on the ground for that reason. Yeah, I bet. What do they like to fly? I mean, we can only imagine that, but uh, are, are they... I mean, what's what's, you know... Is it is it a joy? Is it a is it a handful? Is it what's it like? Uh, the buff is uh, you know, obviously hydraulic uh, uh, flight controls and stuff, but it's a pretty heavy on the on the forces uh, of the yoke and, and rudder pedals. Uh, there was some initial concern when when women were brought in to start flying the airplane because if you lost uh, two two engines out on the if, say you lost the number one and two. Or the number seven and eight engine, you might have to put uh, uh, 150 or more pounds of boot into the rudder to keep the plane pointed in the right direction. Hmm. And there was a little bit of concern initially about uh, bringing women on board, but they've done they've done great. Yep. Um, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I know you have to go, and I appreciate you taking a few minutes. I, could you just tell us a little bit about your background as a pilot? Um, you, you've been. I mean, have you flown other things other than the B-52s? I uh, I. I graduated from the Air Force Academy as a soaring instructor, so I have uh, just under 500 glider toes. I went through the standard year of uh, pilot training, the T-37, T-38. I flew B-52Gs for about two and a half years and B-52H models with the turbofans for about three years. Uh, I was sent against my will up here to Whiteland and managed to backdoor uh, an assignment flying the B-2. And I retired about a year and a half ago as a uh, as the chief of training here flying the, the B-2 Spirit. Oh, very cool. Very, very cool, yeah. yeah I'd like to buy you a beer and talk about that. Yeah, really. Do you fly general aviation? Uh, since my retirement, I've had one flight in a uh, 172, and I'm actually looking for a CFI right now to get me squared away. I have an ATP CFII uh, military equivalency uh, to get that, but uh, my piston engine uh, experience is three flights in a uh, Piper Seminole to get my ATP and 11 flights in a Cessna 172 for flight screaming and that's it i'm a multi-engine turbine 3400 hours or so i i just can't even imagine that you're going to have a hard time finding a cfi the hard part's going to be 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 choosing among all the ones that want to fly with you it would seem to me but anyways yeah it it would be interesting chris if you if you were interested to come back on when when you get qualified in the in the lighter aircraft 
and maybe kind of tell us a little bit about the transition. Uh, it, it's been interesting. I have actually talked to a couple CF CFIIs, uh, and um, I'm coming from the opposite direction, most of the people that they're, they're uh, dealing with, uh, coming from big and heavy and lots of engines to, to something smaller. And uh, it's, they've had to do some research to figure out what to do with me. But I think, uh, I think we'll get that solved. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to getting uh, uh, checked out. And I actually have a line on possibly uh, flying at a drop zone just to uh, get someone else to pay for it. Very cool. Very, very cool. Well, thank you, Chris, for, for your, all your generosity for coming on here on the Spur of the Moment here and, and for your generosity in the forums uh, and uh, answering a lot of questions in there. We really appreciate it. And we would really love to find a time when you had a little bit more time to just join us to, to you know, casually converse here in the, in the virtual hangar. Thank you very much, Chris, uh, who, whose last name will remain. It won't remain so, uh, our, our, our little secret. Our little secret. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Appreciate it. talking to you all. Thank you. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's see now. What else is important here? We're going to do shout-outs in just a second here. But uh, has Boeing reinvented the winglet? I don't know. That's just a headline I'm seeing here. I don't know if they reinvented it or not. Um, Boeing uh, yesterday announced uh, a new design on a winglet for its uh, forthcoming 737 MAX version. Um, you load the picture, and there's the, there's pictures here at this Linda Boeing website. Um, it it looks like if you if you took um, uh, your middle and index finger on on a hand and spread them apart, as far apart as they could go horizontally, and then rotated that 90 degrees and, and put it on the end of the wing, and that's what this winglet looks like, is as opposed to a traditional. The more traditional um, upward, um, almost vertical upward, uh, but swept back fin. Or, or uh, yeah, it looks like it looks like you combined a, a regular yeah. winglet with troop tips. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both exactly. Yeah, that's a good. And I'm wondering how much aviation aviation partners Inc had in in in, in designing this because they've been a partner with Boeing on some other retrofits and factory fits of their winglets uh, to other Boeing airplanes. And uh, this looks just like the kind of thing that those guys would be up to speed on. Mm-hmm. Let's see now. Where are we here? Uh, shout-outs, I guess, then. What do we got here? Shout-outs. Oh, we got a top story tonight. Yeah, yeah. Target-rich <laughs> environment. Yeah. Uh, who wants to go first? I'll go first. Um, I want to do a quick shout out to uh, a, a, a good buddy, good flying uh, friend, uh, AvCamp uh, alumni, uh, uh, AcroCamp alumni, excuse me, um, uh, Linda Meeks, who is the founder and head of the Girls with Wings program, um, an educational program that is all about uh, encouraging uh, young women to get involved in aviation. And uh, they've recently uh, announced the winners of their current round of aviation scholarships 
and uh, it's it's just very cool. They've uh, they've uh, granted uh, three different scholarships to three different young women. Um, they appear to all be high school aged uh, uh, girls, women, young women, and. Uh, um, congratulate them. Uh, the thing that I found particularly notable about this is that uh, Linda on their website, on the Girls with Wings website, posted the essays that these young women uh, wrote um, as part of their application for the scholarship. And, and it's just astounding to read the things that these high school-aged women have already accomplished in their aviation careers. And uh, so I, I urge people to, A, uh, go to the Girls with Wings uh, website and uh, read the, about these young women. Um, and uh, there are fantastic accomplishments. And also to consider making a donation to the Girls with Wings program. Um, it's, uh, in my view, an excellent program and uh, can use all the help that it can get. That's girlswithwings.com. One, one of the winners, I didn't catch your name, um, Natalie, um, has her own website. It's called Gotta Go Fly. Yep. And I don't know... How, which I'm more impressed about her a her winning the scholarship b uh, having her own website by the name of Gotta Go Fly or c that that URL was even available. Yeah, I know, right? There, uh, it's it's just amazing to read these things, and uh, you you all ought to take a look. It'll almost make you a little ashamed. At uh, you, yeah. you, know, you go like, well, you know, oh. just, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. We done we done we done seen professionals at work here. Yeah, well, it's like you know, it's the old Tom Lehrer joke. He said he said when Mozart was my age, he had been dead six years. <laughs> 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 so uh that's like, that's like the old george burns quote um he's doing an interview with somebody and he's smoking a cigar and and uh, the interviewer says what does your doctor say about you smoking cigars and george burns looks at the interviewer and says my doctor's dead <laughs> yeah right there you go he didn't there. smoke cigars there you go uh let's see now shout outs who's got another one I got one when when you're ready. Yeah, I'm ready. Go for it. Well, to EAA Chapter 88 here in Wichita, which is uh, already deep into preparation for their annual Independence Day weekend fly-in, uh, which will be up at uh, Newton, Kansas again this year. Uh, and you might notice, we're, we're telling you this now to give you a chance to prep, but Fourth of July this year is in the middle of the week. So you're going to see a lot of Fourth of July stuff and then a lot of Independence Day stuff on the weekend after. Well, that's where the EAA Chapter 88 fly-in will be. It will be on the uh, weekend after. And that would make it, I believe, where is the calendar? Yep. That would make it July 7th. So check it out. Good folks. A lot of fun. If you fly in, they usually buy your breakfast. Cool. Jeb, you got anything? Yeah, I got maybe one or two here. Uh, let's see. Well, oh, yeah. This is something I think we really kind of missed, uh, and that's the 50th anniversary of uh, John Glenn's orbital fly. The first yeah. American orbit of uh, the Earth. Um, that was 50 years ago. I know. In February. Wow. Seemed like just 50 um, years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it does. But it, yeah, I don't know anything about it. I was just I've read I about it. I just um yeah, okay. <laughs> oh man, I remember I remember oh, them I remember. rolling the T V oh, yeah. set into the classroom oh, yeah. in oh, yeah. grade Big school. Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
And um, we watched it all happen live. The splashdown. I mean, the 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 whole school. I think the whole world here in the U.S. was transfixed, and from launch through three orbits and splashdown. You were talking about four hours. I don't think anybody took a pee for four hours. <laughs> well, one of the just clicking some links as as you know people sometimes do came across some bio information on Glenn. I did not know that he, um, in the last 19 days of the Korean War, in 19 days only, uh, flying an F-86 in a, as an exchange. He was a Marine pilot flying to the Air Force. Uh, in 19 days, he, he shot down three MiGs, three MiG-15s. Over really? I did yeah. not know that. No, me neither. I did That's, not either. Yeah. Um. Not just a spaceman, but an air combat pilot of accomplishment. I know, and and a, a more more. Re- I mean, that's yeah. His 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 original orbital flights, of course, are, are part of legend and, and history. Um, it was very very cool when he was one of the people to go back into space to go to the uh, up on the space shuttle, um, uh, probably ten years ago now. But uh, was, yeah, getting close to that. It was more than ten years. He was ago, a little actually. bit older, wasn't he? Yeah, no, it was more like twelve, almost fifteen years ago. Now that I stop yeah. and think about it. Um, but uh, I, I just that was a very very cool time, and that was a very cool thing. And uh, so uh, yeah, so uh, big shout out to John Glenn for uh, for all the things he's done yeah, for us. And, yeah, not not so much all that, but just you know the the fiftieth anniversary. There you go. Is a, a deal too. Um, well, he he, he but, was still flying his Baron until just a few years ago. He, this article that we link to here says, um, "Oh, just sold it uh, earlier this year." Uh, um, How old is he now? He's ninety now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Glenn, Glenn just recently gave up flying and sold his uh, Beach Baron. Um, Da, 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 da. But um, the other punchline here is, of the original Mercury 7 astronauts, there's only two of them still alive. Glenn is one of them, and Scott Carpenter is the other one. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yep. Time marches on. Really? What else? Um, I, I, this is just so stupid. I have to, I have to mention this. Go ahead. <laughs> there's this website. You know, okay. Okay, well, look back. Everybody have talked like a pirate day. Uh, yeah, right. Rawr, rawr, yeah, right. Rawr, rawr, yeah. yeah okay. um, there's a Top Gun Day website. <sighs> okay. So the idea is to talk like Top Gun <laughs> on this day. <laughs> Can you give May, us some examples? May 13. Uh, um, I feel the need, the need for speed. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Roger, call the ball. Um, whatever. It's it's, it's, it's time to buzz the fridge is another example. (laughs) May 13th. (laughs) On this website. (laughs) Tally-ho, Wilco. Is is Top Gun Day. He's supposed to talk like Top Gun. So Uh, I just wanted to throw this out there. There are some sick people with nothing to do. (laughs) What's the website? Top Gun? Top top Gun Day, all one word, dot com. Okay. There are some sick people out there with <laughs> nothing to do who have internet access. Uh, I shouldn't have opened that. All right, you probably didn't hear that, but I I open the page and right. it immediately starts talking sure. to you. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, what would be an interesting contrast is to play a 
Talk Like Top Gun Day along sound the soundtrack of Talk Like the Battle of Britain Day. You think, huh? You combine those two? I think the contrast would be remarkable. I can't. I cannot imagine most of the Top Gun dialogue being delivered in a British accent. I think that's I'm, I'm really, alone with the calm of that. The, could be that could be Top Gun Two. That could be the I, whole see, thing. That you could know? be Top Gun Two. This could be Top Gun Three. Forget Top Gun Two. Let's move on because it's, pro- <laughs> it's going to have Cruise in it. Okay, <laughs> it's going to have Cruise in it. So at this at this stage of his career, uh, it's not going to be the same. Well, Top Gun 3, he is the hottest no. uh, Top remotely Gun 3. piloted vehicle pilot in, in, the, in the Air Force. And he's showing how all the other ones to fly airplanes with no pilots. Yeah, I don't know. But Jeb, he's what itching you, to get back in the air. Yeah, Jeb, what do you think it is? I, I think it's, a, uh, it's, it's certainly uh, multinational, if not European, uh, in, in American. And that's right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they'll be sad. They'll have to have accents. Yeah, okay. Yes, right. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, time to stick a fork in this one. Am I wrong? No, you are not wrong. Okay. Thank you to uh, Chris, the retired B-52, B-2 pilot, for, uh, for uh, on the very, very spur of the moment. Um, I just saw, happened to notice him online on, on Twitter and, uh, and asked him if he would, would mind us giving him a call, and he was a good sport. Even as I speak, he is busy disabling that feature. In his- yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so we thank Chris for taking a few minutes and, uh, and explaining to us a few things about the challenges of a, of a B-52 coming into Oshkosh this summer. Uh, well, Twitter finally has something useful to offer in the uh, okay okay <laughs> hey, that's jeb burnside he's a freelance aviation writer and editor and is currently serving as the editor-in-chief of aviation safety magazine jeb what have you been working on anything we can check out i am in the throes of uh getting cranked on the magazine uh june issue uh is due very soon and uh it'll be a lot of fun to put together i have a an article in there from uh one of our compatriots here tonight uh, mm-hmm. mr hick and another one in there from uh, Amy Lobota. And uh, we'll see what else we can pull out of our hat. But, okay. Uh, cool. Did that and uh, have um, um, some articles up coming in um, the Aircraft Electronics Association's um, monthly magazine, Avionics News. Look for those. Very cool. And in general, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, yeah, that part. Uh, that part. Uh, uh, JeBurnside.com. Uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, sometimes AEA.net, sometimes AvWeb.com. Cool. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what have you been working on? Anything we can check out? Well, let's see. The latest avionics news has a piece of mine in it. And if if you can edit out five seconds, I'll be able to look at it and tell you what it was. Yeah, go ahead. Grab it. Can't freaking remember. Oh, wireless connections in the cockpit. Different ways that you can use wireless equipment in airplane cockpits. Uh, that's an avionics news. And uh, let's see. There's uh, Business Aviation Insider. Has, uh, the latest one just came out and has some uh, of my handiwork in it. Uh, talking about how to maintain currency when you're a business pilot. Uh, and the and the guy that owns the airplane and the company sounds good. And in general, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, it could be aea.net, dot net, magazine dot com, dot com for my friends at World Aircraft Sales. Uh, 
or you can roll the dice and see what comes up by accident. Yeah, very cool. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Please check out my uh, Kindle eBooks. Uh, uh, for example, Around the Field, Volume One: The Stories of the People, Places, and Planes of the Oshkosh Flying. You can learn about all of my uh, eBooks at Amazon.com/author/jackhodgson. And in general, you can learn about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. And uh, now he's sort of almost become the forums administrator. Uh, He's uh, completely taken over the role of approving new forum registrations, which is good because I was terrible at it. And uh, and, uh, he's very, very present in the forums answering questions and directing questions and things like that. So big thanks to Jeff Ward for all the help he gives us with the podcast. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and Jim Goldman and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, and the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? Live really long by going flying because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Get the note The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.